Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. We welcome you to Bite Into It, where we talk technology, computing, the internet, games, uh, all of the good stuff that you need um, in your ears on a Wednesday night. I'm very excited to be with you. Um, tonight on the show, we have Mr. Dan Salmon. Good evening. Um, how's your weekend technology been, Dan? What's What's been good for you? Oh, look, um, I think my, my highlight was um, the the dog that came into the call in, at work today and started licking the headset of the person whose dog it was. That was an interesting experience. I, I think uh, the, the look on Laura's face when I described it earlier and right now is um, kind of indicative of how that made me feel. But it was, it was an interesting highlight. Uh, I feel like that's a lockdown ASMR kind of YouTube channel. Um, <laughs> I only discovered what ASMR was it's very good, recently. It's dogs kind of in, in our rooms and hanging up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, too much. It's, hey, it's, ab- it's above board. If you just want to listen to people cutting soap and doing stuff like that, it's fine. <laughs> um, also, Laura Summers. Laura, um, good to have you on the show tonight. Thanks so much, Warren. Hey. I think we broke down. Uh, yeah, look, little... I think you broke me. And can I just say that this is not ASMR. This is like the opposite of that. It's like the polar, the polar opposite. Like I'm, I'm just getting shivers down my spine thinking about the sound that it makes when like a rough tongue goes across the mic or like a headset. That's just not okay. Uh, like, <laughs> like fingernails this? on blackboard no. type stuff. Yeah. 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 Hey, I do have a um, technology win for the week though. I discovered that there's a uh, like little app you can install and it puts a bunch of like Snapchat filters on top of your, um, on top of your like video calls. So you can do a whole bunch of things to your face. Um, and the, the way that this um, particular guy on Twitter had hacked it was so that he could do um, like hand gestures. So it had hand gesture recognition. So he could have a bunch of things like he would wave and he'd have a little um, pop up that would say bye bye. Um, or you could do a thumbs up to say, yes, I agree. Go on. So if you're having like a less verbal day and you don't feel like having a chat so much, it kind of gives you a way of giving some quick feedback. Um, and it also makes you look like a cartoon character, which is kind of fun. That sounds heaps of fun. I'm into that. Um, I'll be on the show tonight as well. I'm Warren Davies. Um, tonight, uh, I guess as we design our, our technical utopian slash dystopian future, uh, we need to take a lot of care and give thought to both the human biases, or the human biases we are uh, intentionally and unintentionally uh, including uh, in our work and, and gifting to uh, generations to come. Uh, tonight on the show, we talk with Jenny Kennedy, uh, who is one of the authors of The Smart Wife, Why Siri, Alexa, and Other Smart Home Devices Need a Feminist Reboot. So we're going to have a look at what's needed in that space and, and, and what's interesting there. Uh, also, The Social Dilemma, which is a, a bit of a mishmash of documentary fiction and, and kind of um, exploring uh, scenarios, uh, has caught our eye. And uh, we're going to have a bit of a chat about that uh, later in the show, which uh, should be a bit of fun. But... Uh, before then, we do have uh, plenty of news that um, we think um, you'd be interested in. Um, Laura, you've been following, uh, I guess, some whistleblower news. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. There's a, there was a big um, leak out of Facebook earlier in the week, um, and I think it's it's caught the eye of BuzzFeed, and quite a lot of people have been tweeting about it. Um, and it's a data scientist named Sophie Zhang who wrote an internal memo to 
describe some of her concerns and problems with her work at Facebook, but that memo was then leaked um, out to the, the news organizations. And so quite a lot of the details of the memo have been made public. But um, so far, it seems quite good that people are trying not to share the personal um, and identifiable aspects of the memo. Um, but what's important about what she's talking about is she was working um, in an area of Facebook that is tackling disinformation, bot-like behavior, and essentially like what they call uh, insincere or like untrue behavior. So behavior where people are sort of acting like a real user of Facebook, but actually with a nefarious purpose, trying to polarize people, trying to get them to vote or not to vote, trying to scare them off the platform or keep them on the platform or polarize them. Um, but yeah, a whole bunch of people use Facebook in this way to do what they call this inauthentic behavior. And she was in a position of power where she was essentially saying, yes, we're going to prioritize this and try and fix it. Or no, we don't have the time or resources. And um, this became so stressful to her. And she, she found it so upsetting that she got to the stage where she decided to leave because she felt like she had blood on her hands, like she had literally um, impacted the result of real world elections. And she had literally caused the death of people through her action or inaction. Um, hey, Dan, I think you've been checking out the story too. Like, what are your, what's your take on this? Well, look, I mean, it's disappointing, but not surprising. I think, you know, there, are, there, there is just continually ongoing issues with regards to the way that, um, our, I suppose our behaviors are being, checked and manipulated by these platforms, Facebook in particular, but, you know, none, none of them are, are blameless in this. Um, it's, it's heartening to see that there are people who are willing to speak out of it, on it, and I suppose we might touch on that a little bit later in the discussion around the social dilemma, but it's... I, su I suppose it, it, it look it's it's only going to keep going and hopefully hopefully you know the the more light that's shed on it the the, the less likely it is to be con to continue happening but at the same time you know if if the I suppose evidence is anything to go by it seems like that these these things only change when it affects business uh, rather mm -hmm. than anything to do with ethics well one of the major points she made is that she felt like Facebook was much more concerned with the PR impact of any of these things coming to light. And they, they therefore prioritized the work that they would do in this data science space based on whether or not there was the potential for like essentially a PR, you know, shitstorm for lack of a better word. Mm. And that is not great if you care about democratic elections or if you care about smaller countries whose, you know, impact on the global stage may be less visible. Um, and obviously it's not great if you care about fairness, just by principle. So yeah, the, the idea that like it needs to have the potential to create a PR storm or that it's already created one in order to get prioritized by the company seems like the, the horse leading the cart from my point of view. Absolutely. And, and, and we're not, we're not talking about, you know, small things here. We're talking about, you know, the pre like elections in Honduras and Azerbaijan, which, you know, aren't the highest profile of countries, but we're also talking about Brazil, which is, you know, one of the largest uh, populated countries in the world and the implications of what's happened in Brazil as a result of, um, you know, Jair Bolsonaro being president now and all of the, you know, COVID response, for example, is, is you know, that's hundreds. Down the Amazon. Exactly. Know, that's the thing that we should care about. Possibly. 
possibly. We should it's possibly care about Amazon. It's the planet for a reason. <laughs> I know. So it's like these these kind of decisions that are made by a minimal number of people who are working in these organisations have such far-reaching consequences that they either don't care about or do or do care about enough but not enough to actually do anything about. I know. <laughs> It's, it's interesting to, to think about um, they are spending so much time fronting, uh, you know, uh, Senate inquiries and, and talking about what they could have been doing better and, I guess, um, trying to minimise the, the fires. Uh, I wonder how much time they are actually spending back there kind of talking to their teams about how they can um, make the changes that obviously really clearly need to be done. I mean, when you when you read stuff about when you, when you read things like that, like I've, I've affected election results with, with no oversight, it makes you wonder um, what else we don't know about about what's going on. They're, they're going to be such a uh, such a behemoth, um, and it's so hard to to sort of um, track or, or sort of um, see these things coming through, um, address them, and then make the changes within a few months. You know, like it, it takes a few months to change anything. They spent, I think. 200 hours polishing the like button when it first came out or, or, or much more, um, let alone actually making the substantial changes that, that are needed. So it does make me wonder if that original idea, like, you know, free, free and it always will be, is actually something that we should have rethought or need to rethink quickly if, if it's a service that we're paying for and, and is regulated and kind of has an element of control at a, you know, state or, or federal level, um, maybe these things will be dealt with much quicker. Um, one thing that is being dealt with uh, by the government, um, whether that's a good thing or not, is the COVID Safe app. Um, uh, I guess we um, all like to laugh up our sleeve a little bit about how this is going, and um, I guess we can start to afford to now that things are things are going a little bit better. But obviously, tracking COVID is going to be really important for the next maybe six months to a year at least um, before vaccines uh, at the earliest uh, are sort of um, in the community. Um, we have reported a few times, and I think uh, Denham Sadler, uh, who's written a piece in Innovation Oz, has come on and talked about it previously, but um, the amount of, uh, I guess, um, external contracting and maintenance work done on the COVID Safe app has bounced up to uh, nearly $5 million with um, a few new contracts worth more than $2 million made public this week. Um, three of those contracts went out to Oztender, which is one of government sites, federal government sites for uh, tendering work of this nature. Um yeah, $2.3 million um, has been awarded by the Digital Transformation Agency, um, which is, I guess, the sort of Canberra uh, Innovation Centre, uh, AWS, uh, Amazon Web Services uh, Tech Consultants, um, and uh, a third one um, uh, to Shine Solutions, which has worked with uh, DTA um, since early on in the COVID Safe app, um, has picked up another contract over half a million dollars. Um, yeah, there's a few more um, contractors that are mentioned here, and I'll sort of, you know, make no uh, commentary about their, their skill or ability, but uh, I guess point out the fact that um, uh, there have been a lot of difficulties with the COVID Safe app to date in terms of providing accurate results, um, a lot of issues with uh, particularly the iOS version, um, which didn't work when, when the phone was not on um, and the screen active. But... Um, I don't know. Uh, Laura, Dan, what, what do you think about um, should we continue to invest in this and um, is it kind of um, bad money or good money after bad? How do you feel about it? Yeah, I'm, I'm on the good money after bad camp, um, but I've also been on the let's let's swap to the Apple Google API for some time. So I, I think that a distributed approach to privacy and protections would be, it's not perfect. I'm not completely happy that it's going to be maintained by American companies, but at the end of the day, 
their um, approach and their the sort of robustness of the tech seems much preferable to the sort of janky half-baked stuff we inherited from the Singapore developers. And, you know, like, I know I'm throwing shade, but to be fair, this is a hard job. Getting Bluetooth connections right is actually a whole thing. It's a really delicate, complicated job. Um, and it takes a lot of really good engineers, which is why I think the approach that Apple Google has produced is actually like pretty pretty good by comparison. Hmm. As, well, as, well as, as well as removing the central the centralized database, which is obviously preferable from privacy and security. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you've also been keeping an eye on some uh, AI bias that's um, of interest to you, Laura. What's what's the story um, here? You know, this is always my favorite topic. Well, this is actually good news. Um, EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, has announced the winners of their 2020 um, award, um, they're the Barlow recipients at its Pioneer Award Ceremony. And it's a number of people whose research I track, including artificial intelligence and racial bias experts, Joy Bulawami, Dr. Timit Gebru, Deborah Raj, and sex worker activist and tech policy and content moderation researcher, Danielle Blunt. So basically three, or sorry, rather four really excellent women who are doing really, really good research, really, really good advocacy, and whose work has been, let's put it this way, not super popular in the tech world for some years, and it's taken a while for, for their work to get accepted because it was pushing against the orthodoxy and pushing against the agendas that these big tech companies had to, to get their facial recognition systems out into the world and selling. Um, so yeah, that's that's really nice news. That's coming up October 15th, and EFF does a really good job of um, advocating and protecting our rights in this space. So nice to see them recognizing the work of these people. That is good news. In other good news, I do like a little bit of TikTok. Um, Dan, <laughs> you've been you've been um, aghast at um, potentially a new owner. Oh, it's it's it. Look, it's it's an ongoing it's a feast. This kind of TikTok ownership thing. Um, you know, obviously the United States government has opinions about who should own TikTok and, uh, you know, they've, they've put various ultimatums out there that it cannot be owned by a Chinese-owned company. Um, it, it seems that um, the latest potential owner of TikTok, after Microsoft are no longer interested apparently, is Oracle, who want to take an ownership stake in uh, the TikTok corporation. Um this is crazy to me. Absolutely bonkers. Yeah, look, I mean, you know what? Oracle have money, and I mean, they, they, they want if they want to splash their cash in the in the direction of TikTok. Um, you know, who, who are we to stop? I'm, stop. I'm not a TikTok user, so it's not going to impact upon my particular, uh, I suppose, experience of the app. Um, guys, do you do you think that there's going to be? You know, are we are we going to start seeing TikTok in like you know, uh, I don't know, our Accounting software? I don't know what's going on here. Yeah. End of year kind of dance party, end of financial year. It's great. <laughs> I, 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 can't, I can't imagine this happening in any year other than 2020. This was so bizarre to me that I just thought, like, this is, of course, I guess in 2020 this happens, but... It, yeah, I mean, I will say this for this for this, um, you know, like buying out ownership partnership situation with Oracle and TikTok, it has already birthed a thousand brilliant memes. And I look forward to all the extra good memes that are coming. Like, come on. Uh, it's, just, it's just the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts and via the app. You are listening to Bite Intro on the three Triple R with Warren and Laura. My name is Dan. Hope you're having a good night. Warren. 
Yes, I um, am very excited to have a chat, um, as I'm sure uh, everybody is, with um, the author of, one of the authors of The Smart Wi-Fi Siri, Alexa, and Other Smart Home Devices Need a Feminist Reboot. Um, we're now joined in studio, studio um, such as it is, um, in, in COVID times, with Jenny Kennedy. Um, thanks for taking time out of your night, Jenny. Thank you so much for having me. Um, what, was the, what was the genesis for this book? Was there an interesting story where you're all kind of like um, sitting in the park or sitting at the pub going, we need to kind of crack this one open and talk about it? Uh, a little. I don't know a pub. Well, a pub wasn't immediately involved. Um, so Yolandi and I were both working on quite different projects that were converging in the same spaces. So we were both looking at how people kind of adopt and adapt different technologies and devices within their homes. Uh, Yolandi was looking at energy saving devices and practices and I was on a project looking at the impact of high speed broadband in Australian homes and we were going basically to lots of different homes interviewing observing videoing people with their setups and through these two very different projects we came to the same realization that um, a lot there was a great deal of gender division in the household in terms of who was doing the work getting the different devices set up, the maintenance, the getting the getting the configuring the Wi-Fi systems, getting different systems to talk to one another, troubleshooting when things worked that went down. And um, across all all of the house, well, not all, but across the households that we were looking at, the majority of the people doing this kind of work were men. And so we were questioning how much time this was taken up and how much this was then impacting their availability to engage in all the other forms of work that need to happen in the household. So we had firstly an interest in the kind of digital, what we call, like what a lot of research is called digital housekeeping, the kind of work that goes into getting all our technology to work in the home. It's not as seamless and frictionless as a lot of the adverts and marketing want us to believe. Um, and also we're interested in how this was this is often overlooked in more general studies of housework and of divisions in labor in the home like we're yet to see technical um, and digital labor uh, this kind of housework addressed in like the consensus um, but secondly we were also really interested, perhaps this is where the pub bit comes in, we were really interested in the types of devices that people were bringing into the home and the types of engagements and relationships they were forming with them. And this was um, particularly focused around what we saw as very feminised devices. Um, feminised not only in voice, like we're interested in voice and digital assistance um, in their names, but also feminized in kind in the kinds of work that they were being brought into doing the home. And that's where the idea for the book came in. And then it exploded. <laughs> Amazing. Um, I, can I just say, I, I've read most of it at this stage, and I love that you called out Annabelle Crabbe and The Wife Drought early on. Um, such a good book. And for those who haven't read it, uh, it, it talks about all of this, all of this um, fraught gender politics around the work of keeping a home and the work of caring for people like children, parents, etc. Um, and the fact that basically everybody needs a wife right now, and it's not just men. Um, but yeah, uh, to, to sort of circle back to this question of the feminized or the feminization of these devices, um, is that the case for all of them? Like, would you, I know that you researched quite a lot of different um, voice assistants, home smart devices, like, 
would you say that there was like kind of a clear winner that they were all female or feminine or how, how would you characterize like that sort of overall look at what was happening in people's homes? Are you talking about in the field work or the, the types of research that we've done in the projects? Oh, in, in the field work and the, in the stuff you're seeing, like actually being yeah. used. Yeah. I mean, well, Definitely. I mean, if you think about the most um, the most popular devices that are being taken up in the home at the moment, they are, um, you know, Alexa, uh, Google Home, or people making use of Siri already on their Apple products. All of which have um, are introduced with female voices. And did you find that? Um that there, there were sort of obvious differences in these in these sort of what you called stereotypical feminized attributes, or were you finding them reasonably consistent in their personality, their attitude, their way of interacting with people? Yeah, like one, I mean, one of the main issues we have is how consistent they are. They are all very um, demure, subservient, aiming to please, passive, um, you know, the ideal housewife, basically. There's no variation in the forms of femininity that they're performing in the home. And that's one of our main bugbears, actually. That's one of the, the reasons we want a reboot. Mm. Um, Jenny, one of the things that I've noticed in, you know, my use of things like Siri and comparing that to other, other people who I know, I've, I've noticed a couple of people who have chosen to change the voice of uh, their Siri or whatever it is to a male voice. Um, what did, did your research touch, touch on? Sort of the, I suppose, the, the drivers for why people might change that, or why it was, uh, I suppose, defaulted to a female voice in the first place. Yeah, yeah, we definitely touch, we definitely have a look as to why these devices have a default female voice, and we are, I guess, we have been culturally conditioned socially conditioned to um, prefer a female voice especially in our home it's less confronting it's more familiar it's more um, I guess friendly and that's a really important point when we think about the, the companies that are behind a lot of these like the primary devices that are coming into the home they are large corporations that are either seeking to sell you products or seeking to sell your data elsewhere so the likability of the devices is very important. Do you think it's actually necessary from a functional point of view to even have this gendered persona sort of bolted on to the device? Is that an important part of interacting with it? Or do you think that that's sort of this insidious agenda that you're suggesting that the companies are doing it because it's the most likely to capture the data they want or to sell the products that they're trying to sell you? Yeah, I think you're hitting on something there in terms of it's a shortcut. It's familiar. So it's that it's that quick, it's that you know, quick kind of familiarization to get it in. But it doesn't mean that they have to always be so overtly gendered. And there are some really great examples about, you know, of technologies that do try to be more genderless or gender neutral voices. But I think the voice isn't the only issue. One, like one of the things Yolandi and I address in the book is that the voice isn't the only issue. It's all very well to change the pitch of the voice and claim then it's gender neutral. But what that's not addressing is the role the devices are playing in the home, the types of, um, 
I guess, practices that they're taking on and how that's displacing other labours within the home and also their role in terms of the whole ecosystem, both from an environmental perspective, from an ecological perspective, but also from an economic perspective. I think it's interesting that um, so many of the, I guess, service benefits that these services assume is the thing we want most and need the most at certain times. Like, would you like, would you like advice on the weather, or would you like me to kind of like turn the turn the heated floor on in the bathroom or something like that? I think it. I think this, this role in the home for these devices um, can, can obviously be a lot broader than that, such as a source of wisdom or intelligence or advice or sort of company. There, there's so many different roles that these things can do. Um, I, I, I do I do wonder, I think everything you're saying and um, the, the thrust of it um, makes a lot of sense to me. I wonder if the... Um, the fact that it's designed by software people and that software is there to help and that we've spent 40, 50 years longer writing software to help people and to be in a, a, a role of assistance or, or sort of servitude is kind of leading the, the first generation of, um, I guess, uh, conversational um, AI. Do, do you have any thoughts on that, whether we're inheriting this kind of software is there to please us kind of mentality? Oh, I think, oh gosh, there's so much there. Um, I think that there's a great saying, and I can't think what the provenance is of off the top of my head, but that basically the whole smart home technology um, is a, it's a solution in search of a problem in that these products are being inserted into our homes in order to perform tasks we didn't know we needed them to perform. And we have to question whether or not we actually need them to perform these tasks, whether we want them to, whether what it's costing us overall from a societal or a, like an inter-familial um, dynamic by having these devices operating within our home and interoperating between us. Um, yeah, there's just... There's so many other questions other than, um, you know, that they, they want to help us, but want to help us for what for what purpose, really? I'm not even sure that I just want someone to help me. I would like someone to tell me sort of, hey, um, you've been in your house too long. Like, get out. Go go, go do something else. Uh, I find this, um, this, it's here to help, which seems like a logical thing for these sort of, you know, large tech sort of organisations to suggest. I'm, I'm not even sure that's the right thing that we need in the house. Mm. Anyway, just a thought. Jenny, so thinking about, I suppose, the tasks that are uh, assigned to these, um, these these devices, in, in your book you use the term uh, wife work. Um, did you want to maybe unpack what wife work is and how it's viewed in our society and how it interacts when, when we're kind of talking about these digital assistants as I suppose the, the technological servants? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, thanks. Um, so with wife work, we look specifically at a number of different types of wife work. Um, so we've got housekeeping. Um, housekeeping, uh, so obviously, you know, taking care taking care of the home and the, the, the items within it. But that also comes into, like, how to, how to care for people or other animals or agents within the home. Um, the homemaking, so that's beyond the just the functional kind of making sure that the place is clean and tidy or that the groceries are in the fridge, to the whole ambience of the home. Is the temperature at the, you know, the optimal setting? 
Um, do the lights need dimming or turning up because of the time of day? Do you need a little nudge that it's time for your bed? Um, but also there's other forms of life work that we see uh, these smart life um, technologies coming into, which is in the form of intimate care. Um, so that might be like emotional intimate care in terms of, hey, you look like you need to go for a walk of fresh air. But there's other more... Um, more personal intimate cares that these devices are going into. And that's where we ended up going into a realm of research that I don't think we were anticipating when we started, which was looking at the development of the sex robot industry and about the way in which these uh, robotic devices are being um, marketed not only as sex devices, but also as intimate companions and, you know, in the sense of they will remind you when your favorite football team is playing and ask you if you've got enough beers in the fridge or, um, you know, wish you happy birthday. So this idea of a companion, I think one of the I can't remember what manufacturer it is, but they actually advertise their sex robot as saying um, like a nagging wife even better or a wife that doesn't nag or something. Um, no. <laughs> it's it's like the digital Jeeves plus the like perfect sexual partner. Exactly. Yeah, and then you just open a whole can of worms because it's a perfect sexual partner that never says no, unless you want her to. Mm. And if you want her to, is that okay for the programmers to let you? Is that? Yeah, that's what a what a um interesting and fraught rabbit hole to go down. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and we're not we're not um, we're not anti anyone's techno sexual kinks. Everyone for their own. Um, but there are questions that start coming up in that domain in terms of what is it saying when you have a manufacturer producing a sex robot that is marketed as an intimate companion that interfaces with every other smart device in your home that comes with a very limited set of personality functions. And, you know, they are, they have very um, descriptive names such as Frigid Farah, or I think it's Wet and Wild Wendy. <laughs> this, this is certainly not the singularity that Ray Kurzweil described no, um, um, some no, 10 years ago. Not. <laughs> and I think the thing the thing to keep in mind, you know, like to the point of sex positivity is that this is problematic, not just because we're sort of reinforcing these like very problematic social norms. But at the same time, we know that these technologists, these marketers, they have an incredibly hard time seeing women as technologically competent, as a valuable market in and of themselves, and they have completely failed to actually design for them. And speaking for myself as a female technologist, I really want some cool toys too. Um, yeah. Do you want to speak to why, or do you have any insight as to what's going on, why women are such an ignored market in this space, or why there's such a focus on catering to men's preferences but not women's? Oh, yes, yes. I mean, look, this isn't just in the sex robot market, is it? It's across the entire technical market. And, you know, one, I mean, one of the, I guess, the easiest arguments to make is that there needs to be women involved in more, I mean, more kind of, of the production process in terms of if the people designing the technology are only designing for themselves we have a very limited idea of what that technology can do. 
when you start broadening the diversity of um, the technical teams, you start broadening the diversity of the imagined users. Um, this is interesting. I, I think um, there's a few more things to have a chat about. We're talking with Jenny Kennedy, um, one of the authors of The Smart Wife, why Siri, Alexa and other smart home devices need a feminist reboot on Bite Into It on Triple R. Um, Jenny, in terms of um, some of the questions that came up in this particular area of, of research, like what, what were some of the most challenging questions that, that your team sort of wasn't prepared to ask and, and what were some of the most interesting um, sort of responses from people in terms of what they were hoping for and um, what they imagined um, this technology would be doing in their homes? Yeah, look, um, a lot of the fieldwork that we draw on from the book came out of Yolandi's fieldwork more so than my own, so I don't know I can speak directly to the, the participants that were talking there. Um, but in terms of in terms of what came out for us as we're researching the market and the whole industry, I think one of the key things that came out for us that we found very um, created a lot of conflict for us is in the the ecological impact of these devices. Mm. In terms of thinking about, you know, their, their kind of reliance on um, finite raw materials that are difficult to mine. Um, the, the basic argument is we shouldn't have these. Like in terms, in terms of the way they're impacting our planet, we should be totally turning our back on them. And so what does that make us if, if we're still, if, you know, we, we reached a point in the book where we realised that we couldn't consciously argue to continue with the smart home industry if we, given that we agreed with a lot of the ecological and the eco-feminist arguments that we were reading about and, uh, and engaging with, but also appreciating that these devices are proliferating in our homes at a significant rate. I mean, smart home technologies are now more ubiquitous than the smart, like their growth rate is, is faster than the smartphone. So they're not going anywhere. And I think we have to learn to live with that. And that's been, that's been the biggest tension for us coming out of the book, I think. What, what do you kind of imagine looking forward five years um, is going to be walking around your home? Um, sort of greeting you in the morning oh my gosh I dread to think I dread to think I um oh, about it's about a year and a half ago I ordered I invested in a mini Sophia um through Hanson Robotics through Kickstarter that is yet to arrive so I'm hoping little Sophia will be wandering around my household <laughs> Um, I, I have, I, I don't know. I just, I find myself getting just drawn in further and further. You do mention, um, early on in the book and then, um, in your closing section that the, the agenda of the book is to propose a reboot, a feminist reimagining of what a smart home device could be. So if we perhaps put aside the very problematic and uncomfortable issue of like ecological sustainability for the moment. Why don't you tell us more about what you imagine a redesign or reimagination of this ecosystem could look like? Yeah. So in the book, one of the, um, the, the final part of the book is a set of proposals. We make nine in total of 
things that of suggestions as to where the industry might go to start this feminist reboot um, in, in terms of addressing some of the problems that we identify and unpack in the book. Um, so, for example, we have one of them is about um, queering the smart wife. So what we want to do is get away from the very traditional heteronormative um, gendered stereotype that a lot of these, especially the voice activated voice um, assistant devices are currently um, operating within. And we want to kind of broaden and expand that away from the subservient, docile, um, docile female. So it's about it's about a widening of what or who the smart wife might be, and about creating room for less traditional, less heteronormative ideas. And it also means that um, it means also staying with the femininity of the devices in many ways. Um, I guess what we're not advocating for is a complete dismissal of any feminine associations. Um, so instead, it's about trying to think about, like, transform what femininity is and also transform what the value of femininity is and transform what the value of the kind of work that these devices yeah. are doing the home in the home is. And I think that's I, one yeah. of the big problems is how we value this kind of caregiving work. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so, Jenny, it's so thought-provoking. Um, I, I encourage everyone who is uh, able to to get a copy or to download a copy of uh, The Smart Wife by uh, our guest Jenny Kennedy and uh, Yolanda Stringers. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Jenny, thank you so much for joining us this evening. We could have Absolutely. talked about this for hours. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Peeps, we've just got a couple of minutes left to have a bit of a chit-chat. And um, like apparently quite a lot of Australia last night, I had a watch of this documentary drama situation on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. It's a look at Facebook, um, the addiction, the addictive properties of social media, the potential decline of the youth, the problems, the problems. <laughs> Where does one start? Where does one start? And um, to be clear, it's driven by a um, ex-Googler Tristan Harris, um, who is now a founder or rather co-founder of a organization called the Center for Humane Technologies. So it's good to know that he is actually essentially the driver, the, the kind of narrator and the person driving this piece. Um, and so he clearly has something of an agenda, which is to identify there's a problem with tech so that people go and use his tools. Um, but yes, I had a lot of strong feelings, TM, about this piece. And I was Let, hoping to chat about it with you too. Let, let's uh, jump into those feelings, Laura. Tell us. <laughs> well... There was uh, a lot of short-term memory situation going on there. Um, there's a lot of places where they sort of were trying to make a distinction between the types of machine learning technologies we have right now and everything that came before it. And what what the sort of narrative was saying is like, the problem we have right now is new, it's different, it's big, it's terrible. And we've had technology in the past that was just tools, just, just a pickaxe, just a spade. Um, but funnily enough, Tristan, uh, um, I think I'm pronouncing this wrong, Trist Tristan, uh, chose to describe the incident of the bicycle, the, the 
the sort of um, introduction of the bicycle into society. And he goes on to say, hey, no one ever looked at a bicycle and said, this is terrible. This is the downfall of society. Only funnily enough, they did. Yeah, so, of course they did. The, lots of people were very anti-bicycle and a funny sub story in all of the anti-bikers is that some people thought that riding a bicycle would teach women how to masturbate and therefore like um, make them no longer need men and sort of and this is all in the context of the suffragette movement so it was seen as both a form of freedom for women and potentially a way for them to discover their sexuality so therefore like completely a verbatim so it's like extra ironic and silly that a tech bro would sit up and be like oh a bicycle is a neutral piece of technology as if it has never had any kind of um, history behind it Mm. If only social media could provide some of these things that you're talking about, Laura. Yeah, that's right. There's there's um quite a lot of Twitter threads that are quite quite good in depth uh, critiques of of the piece. Um, I've I've been sharing them around with the team, but I'm sure we can retweet them if people want to have a bit of a read. Um, another another interesting critique and possibly something to consider here is that there's there's this kind of strong narrative um, both both in this film and also like more generally in tech that um, social media is addictive and the addiction is a problem. Um, but to be fair, there's been quite a significant portion of the medical community sort of pushing back on that concept and saying that actually this is pathologizing by people who are not actually medically trained to make an assessment about whether or not there's an addiction going on. Um, and like, I know we all have had that experience of picking up our phone and not wanting to put it down again. So it sort of feels right. It feels intuitive. So maybe that's why it's easy to believe. But it's important to understand that addiction in its sort of pure form has a really can can have a very destructive impact on someone's life. And, you know, I've never stolen a hundred bucks out of my mom's wallet because I couldn't check Instagram, right? Like it's it's important to think about what we talk about when we use these words, like what does what does um addiction really mean in this context? Um but yeah there's 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 a number of other critiques. Um I I don't know if any of you saw it, but the the funniest bit is where they have this this sort of imagined world where three white men are supposed to be the puppet master algorithms and they're pushing this young teenage boy to look at different things on his feed and, you know, like, look over here, look over here. Oh, there's an ad auction. Um, but it's an, it's an interesting and problematic metaphor for what this technology is actually capable of. And uh, I think my, my strongest response to it was, the whole, the whole narrative, the whole sort of attempt to talk about the problems was pretty light, pretty vague, and didn't really like get down into the weeds of any of the real problems, the real harms we've seen. And particularly like circling back to Sophie Zhao and the, the whistleblower allegations we saw at the beginning of the news segment, hey, we know that elections have been changed, the, the outcomes have been changed, people have been murdered because of politicized content. Um, there's some really big, really literal harms that are happening in the real world because of Facebook. And this documentary just basically didn't talk about them. Just totally can, ignored it. Can, can I ask? Oh, so it doesn't, it doesn't really have a... Um, okay. I think the interesting thing is about having a, a sort of a binary conversation about this. I, I think um, there's a lot of deep-rooted, significant issues um, with, with most of these platforms. Um, and I also think there's a lot of um, amazing, wonderful things that we can do with these tools that 
we kind of well maybe interesting 10 years ago but we take them for granted now such as you could kind of reach out to 30 people and say hey what do you think about this recipe or you can kind of you know share share something i'm kind of I feel most days um, I have an opportunity to do something interesting or different or weird that I certainly couldn't do 10 or 15 years ago. But as part of that, I'm also part of a deeply flawed ecosystem with money at the centre of it and, you know, our our attention being manufactured and manipulated as part of that. Um, Did it kind of suggest that there's – is there – it's going to sound very lame, but is there a middle ground here where we can deal with the things that we want to address and get rid of and change, which are the most important things I think right now, but also keep some of the stuff that um, brings us together and mm. allows us to have these moments that are, were unprecedented in, in human history until, yeah. you know, 15, 20 years ago? Well, I mean, I agree with you. If you're asking what the film was saying, I'd like it. I am, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't really propose a solution um, beyond, hey, the business model is bad and we should fix that. But it, it doesn't really propose an alternate business model. Um, it sort of makes a call out to the historical approach to purchasing software, which is sort of, you know, back in the 90s and the noughties, we sort of had more of a like direct consumer um, approach to software where we would like go to a company, you know, like how we do on the app store now, only like things were mostly paid and cost a lot more than they cost now. Um, so they sort of say, Hey, maybe this advertising business model is not ideal. Um, but look, they, they do, they do make some call outs to exactly your point, Warren, that like, there's a lot of cool things you can do and a lot of positive outcomes that are coming through with these platforms. Um, and that we can't purely focus on the harms and the Um, You know, arguably for many smaller countries, Facebook is the internet. Facebook is their way of accessing the world. Um, And would it be better for them to have Facebook or no internet at all? Like, arguably, Facebook is better. Yeah. Yeah. I spoke spoke to somebody today who said they they don't read news, they get get it all from Facebook, which is, you you know, there's there's a lot to unpack in that. But it's um, it's a valuable... (sighs) Underneath that, it's a valuable service in itself, if we can get the service if we can kind of kick out the kick out the bugs and kind of you know do a bit of a reboot of it absolutely but um for the people for the people who are interested in knowing more about this like what's the kind of mindset for approaching the film how would you recommend sort of people go into it laura well look i think there's a lot of really good reading floating around but one i would recommend is a, a sort of a companion piece to the social dilemma is a piece called the Prodigal Tech Bro, um, and it's hosted up on conversationalist.org. Um, we can retweet the article, but it's a really good look at this kind of repentant tech bro turned justice warrior trope that we're seeing coming up more and more. And it sort of talks to why that's problematic and why it erases the often women, often people of color advocates who've been pushing against these problems all the time, never starting by buying into the big tech, but in fact, like saying from the beginning, it's been a problem. And, uh, you know, like it has, it has a very long form critique, but I think it's a, it's a really good starting point if you wanted to have a little bit more of a nuanced view of like how we might think about critiquing Facebook and the people who are publicly being lauded for critiquing Facebook. Um, one group of people who may be doing that, um, uh, community managers, uh, we do have a few of them, uh, listening to the show and, uh, there's plenty of them doing good work out there. Probably a lot more work at the moment, um, than, uh, they have been doing in the past. Um, there is, uh, something that you might be interested in. The Australian community managers, um, uh, do a, an annual survey. Um, we'll 
tweet out a link and um, maybe put it up in our show notes as well. Um, if you are a community manager in Australia, um, it would be great if you could uh, jump on and have a bit of a go um, of the of the survey. It takes about 10, 10 to 15 minutes. Um, quite a few people who've been on our show in the past um, have been involved and um, do this uh, as an annual thing in a very thoughtful way. And it's kind of, I guess, helping to, to shape um, how that particular role works, what's expected of it, um, how we knowledge share and, and so forth. Um, so get on to that. Um, just one thing to add on community managers. Um, a friend of mine, Caroline Sinders, has recently released a really fun project called um, Design for Community Management. And it's actually a really great resource if you're thinking about how to build more inclusive, more fair, more like um, kind communities. Um, and that's a resource we can tweet out as well if it, people are interested. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.